This program is brought to you by the Practicing Law Institute, a nonprofit learning organization dedicated to keeping attorneys, professionals, and accountants at the forefront of knowledge and expertise. In his 2019 book, Crisis of Conscience, Whistleblowing in an Age of Fraud, New York Times bestselling author Tom Muller observed that finance is whistleblowing's new frontier. Over the last 15 years, more major whistleblower laws have been written in finance than in any other industry. Insiders are essential to unmasking wrongdoing in the highly technical and secretive world of banks, hedge funds, and other financial institutions. The SEC's whistleblower program stands in the foreground of this new frontier. Over the last 10 years, the program has enjoyed tremendous success, and in 2020, the SEC whistleblower program shattered records for the number of tips received in a year, the number of whistleblowers awarded, and the amount of money awarded to whistleblowers in a single year. We'll talk about the success of the SEC's whistleblower program and what it means to be a whistleblower with our very special guest, Tom Muller, today on Insecurities. Hello, and welcome to the Insecurities Podcast, helping you stay current on the latest securities, regulatory, and enforcement developments with a practitioner's perspective on the stories you should be following. As always, I'm Chris Ekimoff, and I'm here with my co-host, Kurt Wolf. It's good to be with you, Chris. Today, we're revisiting what is the most listened to topic in our 25 episodes of Insecurities to date, that of whistleblowing. Longtime listeners of the podcast will recall in one of our earliest episodes, and Kurt, I believe our last episode before full-time remote recording began in March. That's right. Uh, fe- That's right. <laughs> featuring our good friend Matt Stock, director of the Whistleblower Rewards Practice at Zuckerman Law. Today, we're providing an update to that episode to focus more on the developments in fiscal 2020, the annual report recently issued from the SEC's Office of the Whistleblower, issues in- of retaliation and whistleblower protection, and some profiles in whistleblower courage. That's right, Chris. And we are actually very fortunate to have with us today, Tom Muller, as I mentioned up top, he is the author of Crisis of Conscience, Whistleblowing in an Age of Fraud, which is available from Penguin Random House. Tom is also an investigative journalist whose work has appeared in The New Yorker, The New York Times, The Atlantic Monthly, and other publications. Uh, He has spent an awful lot of time talking to whistleblowers uh, while he was writing his book, and we're really excited to hear some of those profiles of courage that you mentioned, Chris, in, in Tom's own words, and hear a little bit about the book. Before we get into that conversation, we want to spend a little bit of time reorienting our listeners to the SEC's whistleblower program. This year marked the 10-year anniversary of the inception of the SEC's whistleblower program under the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act. The program has been remarkably successful, and Chris will tell you a little bit more about the numbers in a minute. Before we get started, though, let's remind our listeners about the program itself. Dodd-Frank required the SEC to create a whistleblower program that incentivizes whistleblowers to report specific, timely, and credible information about potential violations of the federal securities laws. The core objective of the whistleblower program is to motivate people who know of securities laws violations to tell the SEC. Under the SEC whistleblower program, a whistleblower may be eligible for an award if he or she voluntarily provides the SEC with original information that leads to a successful enforcement action in which sanctions of more than $1 million are ordered. In such a case, the whistleblower may be entitled to receive 10 to 30% of the total amount collected. 
And importantly, whistleblowers are not required to report possible misconduct to their employers to qualify for an SEC whistleblower award. And I think we're going to leave it there in terms of the program. There are a lot of terms of art in there. We could go into an awful lot of detail. And as Chris mentioned, if you want to understand the nuance of the rules or how to make a report, go back to episode six and listen to what Matt Stock has to say. But Chris, as I mentioned, the program has been remarkably successful and this year was extraordinary. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the numbers? Yeah, this year's report, uh, which came out in November, marked significant milestones in both the entire tenure of the program and specific awards for whistleblowers in 2020. With that 10-year anniversary, the Office of the Whistleblower noted it had crossed the $500 million mark in total whistleblower awards. That is, since the program's inception, $562 million has been awarded to 106 individuals in 87 specific actions. Further, enforcement matters brought with information from whistleblowers have resulted in orders for more than $2.7 billion, with a B, in monetary sanctions, and more than $850 million of that has been earmarked to be returned to harmed investors. Now, specific to fiscal 2020 alone, the Office of the Whistleblower saw many records broken for a single year. More than $175 million was awarded to 39 individuals, and that dollar value for the year triples 2018, the previous high. The Office of the Whistleblower also received 6,900 tips in the fiscal year 2020, with a significant spike brought about during the months following the nationwide shutdown in reaction to the COVID-19 pandemic. Kurt, I went back and listened to our episode six, where we talked about how the tip line for whistleblowers here, you know, numbered in the 3,000 to 5,000 tip range and just how yeah. insurmountable that would have been. Uh, obviously, 2020 surpassed those insights pretty, pretty handily with 6,900 tips. Oh, yeah. Uh, I think in the, the first full year of the SEC whistleblower program, the the office received 3,001 tips. So, yeah. I mean, we've way more than doubled that. Uh, it's amazing that they've been able to keep up with the explosion of tips. Well, it's a wild number. Uh, the Office of the Whistleblower also made awards to a diverse group of whistleblowers in 2020, including current employees of the company in question, former employees of companies with violations, outsiders who, and Kurt, we talked about this on a prior episode, provided detailed analyses prepared only with publicly available information, which is uh, interesting from a whistleblower perspective, mm -hmm. as well as foreign nationals and harmed investors themselves who have lost money to fraud. Notably, the Office of the Whistleblower awarded $50 million to a corporate insider in 2020, the largest single award provided at the time, $30 million to two whistleblowers, a $27 million award regarding conduct overseas, and $18 million to a whistleblower who suffered retaliation after speaking up. But another fun fact about the 2020 Office of the Whistleblower Annual Report is how quickly it was rendered out of date. We mentioned that $50 million award being the largest single award at the time. Uh, not three weeks after the end of fiscal 2020, the Office of the Whistleblower announced a $114 million award to a single whistleblower, more than double that previous record. So needless to say, this was a banner year and awards and orders from the Office of the Whistleblower. But apart from the stats, Kurt, what did you glean from the report uh, regarding a rules and, and protection perspective uh, in their 2020 annual report? There are a couple things that come out of the report that I think we need to touch on before we get to our conversation with Tom. So also in 2020, the SEC adopted several amendments to the SEC's whistleblower rules. The amendments actually become effective on December 7th, so not long after this episode will air, meaning it's really a timely conversation. But at a high level, those amendments were designed to strengthen the SEC's whistleblower program and to help it function more smoothly. 
there are actually quite a few amendments and some of them are really granular about how things work or how how reports need to be submitted. I'm going to s- skip some of that stuff in the weeds and just hit on what I think are some of the most talked about or some of the most interesting amendments that we saw uh, with that with the rule changes. First, it has to do with the way that the rules have been amended to increase efficiencies around the whistleblower claims review process. Really what they're trying to do is help shepherd these claims through more quickly or deal with the volume of claims that they receive. It can take years for a whistleblower claim to actually get through to the point where the SEC would approve or deny a claim. They're doing things now like coming up with summary proceedings to get rid of some of the obviously unmeritorious claims. They are providing additional resources to the claims review staff to help move some of the claims through more quickly. And I think they're also trying to be a little bit more transparent with potential whistleblowers or or whistleblowers who may be waiting for, uh, for an action to be announced. So that they know the types of things that the SEC is going to really focus on in determining whether to uh, grant an award or the amount of an award. So a lot of things in the rule amendments about the process for reviewing and awarding whistleblowers. There are also some new tools or considerations around the calculation of whistleblower awards. And I think the, the most prominent one has to do with whistleblower awards where the maximum amount a whistleblower could receive would be less than $5 million. So, you know, again, recall that a whistleblower may receive 10 to 30% of the amount collected in an SEC enforcement action or certain related actions. If that 30% would be less than $5 million. The SEC has now installed a presumption, a rebuttable presumption, that the whistleblower will get the maximum award available. It's interesting because I think that some folks thought there might be some amendment around the the sort of bottom end of the range. But what folks were most interested in in the buildup to the amendments was a potential cap that the SEC had proposed to put on whistleblower awards. The thinking was that it would be somewhere around $100 million. In the final reckoning, the SEC did not adopt a rule that puts a cap on whistleblower awards. In fact, they they decided not to entirely and said that we will consider the same factors that we've always considered and that we will calculate the amount of an award in our discretion. And back to that $114 million award, Chris, that was actually announced, I mean, just days after the SEC whistleblower rule amendments were adopted. And it was clearly a signal to the market that, hey, everyone was afraid that that big awards were going to disappear or that maybe there was going to become, you know, some unspoken de facto $100 million cap. Like that's not happening. It's not there. And here's the proof, $114 million, the largest ever days after the amendments. Interestingly, the amendments require whistleblowers to report to the commission in writing to be eligible for an award or anti-retaliation protections. I'm going to actually test Tom on this one later to see what he thinks about that because I know there are certain protections, including anonymity, that we provide to SEC whistleblowers. And I, I don't know if this sort of changes the game a- at all in that sense. Uh, One last thing I'll mention in terms of the rule amendments is that the commission also put out some interpretive guidance alongside the the actual amendments to the rules that answer some of the, you know, I'll call them FAQs relating to the program that have emerged over the last decade. And one of them comes back to this point, Chris, you made about independent analysis. You know, when can an outsider make a tip that will qualify for an SEC whistleblower award? And essentially what they're saying is if you are an outsider who provides a tip to the SEC, the information that you provide has to be something that the SEC couldn't figure out on its own. 
from publicly available or other information. You know, I don't know how helpful that is. It still feels like a little bit of a squishy standard, but I guess what they're saying is if the staff could sit down and figure this out on their own, you're probably not going to be eligible for an award. You know, I don't know if that chills folks who spend time, you know, weeding through public disclosures or, you know, going to see what's happening in retail stores or what have you. There are lots of ways that people cobble together an analysis to form a tip that they give to the SEC. I think it remains to be seen what that particular guidance will mean, but an interesting note. So those at a high level, I think, are, are the most important or the most talked about SEC whistleblower rule amendments. As you mentioned, Chris, I do want to talk for just a second about whistleblower protection, because it's one of the things that remains very high on the agenda, both for the Office of the Whistleblower and for the SEC Enforcement Division. Remember that the SEC can bring enforcement actions against companies or individuals who violate the anti-retaliation provisions of Dodd-Frank. And the SEC has, in fact, brought a number of high-profile actions in recent years, including one this year against Collector's Coffee. And what they're trying to do is really publicly crack down on companies that are either impeding reporting or retaliating against whistleblowers who report. And look, the purpose of the actions I think is pretty clear. In, in the SEC's whistleblower report, they say they want to, quote, ensure that whistleblowers feel comfortable and safe reporting to the SEC without fear of reprisal. End quote. So I, I'm not sure how successful they've been, but I know it's something that Jane Norberg and others talk about over and over again when they're talking about the program. Just as much as they talk about the amount of the awards or the number of recipients, they talk about the steps that they take. They take to protect whistleblowers who have been retaliated against or, or who feel that they have been impeded or prevented from reporting to the SEC. I think it's going to continue to be a very important part of the program. And look, I, I think that this notion that whistleblowers may face severe, sometimes career-ending retaliation for reporting misconduct, the idea that there need to be agencies or programs that not only encourage but protect whistleblowers really brings us to our conversation with Tom. I'm excited to hear his take. Chris, why don't we start by talking a little bit about the book? Thank you, Tom, for joining us. And again, for our listeners, you know, we focus a lot on the SEC specifically and the program we talked about with Matt Stockton already today. But Tom's work and, and the book itself takes a much broader view of whistleblowing, and, and we'll leave it to, to Tom to share some of those takeaways. But in his uh, October 2019 book, Crisis of Conscience, Whistleblowing in an Age of Fraud, was published to critical acclaim and robust response from the whistleblower community. Uh, to pull a quote from the jacket that struck me, quote, Whistleblowers force us to confront fundamental questions about the balance between free speech and state secrecy and between individual morality and corporate power, end quote. Over the more than 500 pages of deep research and storytelling that honestly helped fill my COVID lockdown time, Tom, you touched on a variety of systemic circumstances and specific whistleblower stories. Talk to us a bit about where the development of this book started, how you conducted your research, and your process in conducting interviews and writing Crisis of Conscience. Well, thank you very much, Chris and Kurt. I'm really, really glad to be here. And, and your, your podcast has been an inspiration to me in, in a number of different, different ways. I began looking at whistleblowing kind of by chance. I met a prominent whistleblower attorney specializing in the False Claims Act, which is a Lincoln-era law passed to prevent military contractors and others from stealing from the recently formed Union Army. And Abraham Lincoln himself signed that piece of legislation into law. And since its reformulation in 1986, it's 
led to the recovery of over $60 billion in ill-gotten gains. And one of the fascinating things for me was that an individual could stand in the shoes of the attorney general and become a private attorney general and sue a company or an individual on behalf of the American people to recover lost tax dollars, stolen tax dollars. So I started with this. I'm a historian by training. I started with this fascinating historical bit of legislation that has since become a major, the major tool of the Department of Justice in uncovering fraud. And gradually, I branched out into other areas of whistleblowing, the Dodd-Frank whistleblower programs and government whistleblowers on the other side of the public-private divide, eventually even national security whistleblowers. And what struck me most was that even among these radically different populations of whistleblowers, there was so much commonality, so much commonality in the reasons they blew the whistle and so much commonality in the organizational reaction to whistleblowing. It was quite a, an eye-opener to see that a whistleblower uh, under Dodd-Frank blowing the whistle at the SEC ran into very, very similar dynamics to a private whistleblower using the False Claims Act against a pharmaceutical company, to a national security whistleblower blowing the whistle against the NSA, each quite often thought they were doing their job, not being a whistleblower. They quite often hate the term whistleblowing. They, so many whistleblowers have said to me, look, I was just doing my job. And part of my job as a compliance officer, as an investigator, is to report wrongdoing. Uh, and I need a special word for this. <laughs> but also, the really visceral, really strong reactions that the organization and and the, the person's peers and the person's bosses typically take in response to the blowing whistle was also very striking. And I, I, was, I felt that I was clearly getting at a critical set of human behaviors, both as individuals and as members of a group, that, um, that, that really identify some central characteristics of being human. Uh, and so whistleblowing for me became not just the individual whistleblowers and why they did what they did, but again, the age of fraud in which whistleblowing has become so prominent, primarily because, as whistleblowers themselves say, our safeguards in many cases have fallen down. Um, we shouldn't, in the ideal world, need whistleblowers. They are a kind of an emergency valve on a pressure cooker that starts hissing when the normal safeguards have disappeared. So I was inspired by and, and really taught important lessons by whistleblowers, but ultimately they are the first to tell you that uh, the massive prominence of whistleblowing throughout our society in public and private spheres is quite often a bad sign rather than a good sign. I want to pick up a little bit on this theme of of sort of who is a whistleblower. I know it's something that runs through your book. It's something that we talked about in preparing for this episode. You know, just to, to tee it up again, we, we always like to bring things back a little bit to the SEC, but take this wherever you want. You know, it, according to the SEC's annual report, 68% of the whistleblowers were current or former employees. Now, I think, Tom, you've referred to them in the past as internal people with a conscience. But there were also outsiders. There were foreign nationals who reported on things uh, that were going on at U.S. companies. There were investors who lost a lot of money, right? So, I mean, when you look at it like that, it really is a, a diverse landscape. And it's hard to pick out some, some unifying characteristics. But you've talked to an awful lot of these folks. Can you tell us who, who is a whistleblower? What are those unifying characteristics? Excellent question. I think, first of all, some of the language of the SEC whistleblower provisions 
identify key characteristics. Um, you have to be able to provide original information. It has to be detailed, ideally firsthand. You know, if you can do that from the comfort of your own home without any uh, organizational relationship with the, with the wrongdoing firm, more power to you. In the False Claims Act and a number of other statutes, including the SEC, um, the public disclosure bar is a major consideration. And I think that is widely accepted, that if it's something that you can just read in the newspaper and run to file a complaint on, um, you're not likely to get much joy in many whistleblower statutes, not just the SEC. So I think that recent amendment is not going to raise too many eyebrows, because in, in reality, I think it probably was already there. I, I think that you know, it, it needs to lead to something. It needs to lead to a successful enforcement action. It needs to lead to recovery, which by definition is making whole the harmed parties. I think that those are some of the characteristics, but on a on a broader, more psychological level, at least based on the almost a thousand people that I interviewed on whistleblowing, well over 300 of which were whistleblowers themselves, it is tough to generalize, but many of the characteristics that I, that I encountered were, well, first of all, bla fairly black and white in terms of morality. You know, they, they talk about, well, this is wrong and this is right. And anyone can see that this is corrupt or this is wrongdoing, or this is not part of my job description. Another characteristic that I encountered quite often is not being the biggest team players. Now, team play has become almost synonymous with the most important characteristic of a, of a worker bee. And uh, the problem is that if you're on a good team, absolutely, that's wonderful. If you're on a corrupt team, then being a team player is a problem, right? I mean, this is, this is not an unambiguously good thing. You have to look at what the team is doing. So some of these uh, whistleblowers with that clarity of hindsight, or just because that's the way they're made, we're not, they're, you know, we're not the biggest go along to get along characters. They were sometimes prickly. Sometimes they challenged their peers and their bosses. They weren't afraid to get to disagree. Quite often they had considerable experience in their industry, which is required to have enough self-belief and enough knowledge to say, wait, this is illegal. I don't care what my boss says. I don't care what my cube mate is doing. This is illegal. So experience in the industry is also very important. A newbie is unlikely to have enough knowledge and enough self-belief to, to speak up and, and, and ultimately blow the whistle. Another characteristic I encountered very often, and I think this speaks to ultimately to the, to the motivations of many whistleblowers, is they almost invariably reported internally first. Now, in some cases, again, they, they thought they were doing their job. Uh, it's my job to report this to compliance, or I am a compliance officer. It's my job to report <laughs> this to legal or, or to the board. Um, but more than that, they thought they were doing their organization a huge favor by reporting something that they believed would be a big black eye for the company, uh, you know, a bad PR. They quite often didn't realize that it had been cooked up by their boss's boss. This is, part, this is a, a feature, not a bug of their, of their daily work. So, you know, and again, there's a, there's a moment of truth when the coin drops and they realize, oh my goodness, no wonder I got a pink slip after reporting that internally. It's a sad situation, but quite often people genuinely think they're doing what, what's good for their organization only to find that their organization would have preferred them to stay silent. Now, another issue that, that comes up a lot is the whistleblowers aren't always right. What is that famous expression? I disagree with your statement, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. I, I think that's a very important concept of whistleblowing. It doesn't mean 
that a whistleblower has the full picture. They may have only a very small part of the picture. That's why whistleblower attorneys quite often love to have clusters of whistleblowers that kind of flesh out and give a broader perspective to the scheme or the alleged scheme, because sometimes whistleblowers are wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that that's part of the territory. And that also needs to be taken very, very seriously when you come to whistleblower retaliation, right or wrong. The right of the whist- of someone to blow the whistle is sacrosanct. Now, ultimately, however, I mean, it, it's important to come back to an, another key thing, and I think this points out one of the great strengths of the whistleblower provisions of the of of the SEC program. You know, motives don't matter. Hmm. At the end of the day, it's the facts that count. And whether someone blows the whistle because they are morally offended by what they've seen, or because they really, really hate their boss doesn't matter and should not matter before the law and before the commission. Um, they need to bring good facts and they need to bring, bring details. They need to be able to, to identify people who can corroborate this information. If they can do that, motives don't matter. So whether they're blowing the whistle because they have, they have uncovered a, a horribly damaging scheme that offends their sense of justice or because really you know, they're afraid that their cube mate may blow the whistle first. I mean, it, you know, we really don't need to get into, as, as I confess, I did at great length. We don't need to get into the psychology of whistleblowing too much from the point of view of what is a valid whistleblower, because if their facts are good, you know, of course, as human beings, we want to know why they did these things. And, and quite often, you know, the trigger mechanisms for, for whistleblowers, again, uh, whether they're in the financial sphere or in national security or in pharmaceuticals or anywhere else are frequently the same. In other words, that one of the many characteristics I found of the schemes that, that, that trigger whistleblowing is normalized conflicts of interest within an organization. I mean, an unhealthy melding of public and private, a, a rapidly spinning revolving door, massive outsourcing and contracting of, of the public good to private hands. Mm-hmm. And quite often that comes with a blurred line in terms of, you know, exactly what procedures are being followed and whether the letter of the law is being respected. Another thing is secrecy. And of course, here, financial services is one of the top, uh, but also national security. Uh, anywhere where there is great secrecy and the public is unlikely to know, or even in, uh, in you know, law enforcement agencies or the commission are unlikely to be able to find out on their own that leaves certain people inside this bubble with a knowledge that if I don't say something, this may never come out. And I think secrecy is another major, major concern, major trigger for the whistleblowing act. Um, and ultimately, quite often, you know, there's a massive personal or financial harm going on. There's, there's someone being damaged in this. And the person who blo- ultimately blows the whistle says, wait, you know, this cannot stand because people are losing their retirement savings. Investors are being ripped off. People are being fed harmful pharmaceuticals, and they don't know this. There is a serious damage that the whistleblower takes into account when they ultimately decide whether or not to blow the whistle. And I think, Tom, that's an important element that you bring up in the book is is that kind of diffuse costs, right? The thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of investors or, or recipients of, of state medical uh, care uh, that that bear the brunt of these issues, and a single individual 
who notifies it almost always gets the uh, run end of the stick from the corporate level uh, related to that. And I wanted to flip a little bit uh, into focus on our financial services side, which we touched on a couple of times. Probably my favorite quote from the book is not one, Tom, that, that you wrote or that came from an, uh, an interview, but dates back to May of 1816, a young man named Thomas Jefferson, who's both you know a founding father and famous for his role in, in Hamilton, the musical, uh, wrote to a friend of his <laughs> saying, quote, and I sincerely believe with you that banking establishments are more dangerous than standing armies. And that's something that I think, especially in the past 15 years, rings a little bit more true, uh, knowing that one of our founding fathers, you know, almost 200 years ago, had noted that sentiment. is something that comes up uh, again and again with the whistleblowers uh, that we see from the SEC side, as well as some that you talk about in the book. So uh, we've danced around the topic a bit, but we'd love your take on how the SEC's whistleblower program engages with whistleblowers uh, or motivates them to participate more in the process. You spoke a little bit about the occurrence of, of the folks that you talked to having reported internally before whistleblowing externally. You know, what do you see are some of the benefits of the SEC's program as it relates to financial services? Well, anonymity is the first, second, and third most important characteristic of the of the SEC program, which let's say, I mean, right out, is, is an unqualified success. It's a huge success. I mean, Jane Norberg, the chief of the whistleblower office and her whole team should be congratulated for their remarkable work and for, you know, and, and the people who came before them who built this. $500 million in recoveries since the program began 10 years ago is a major landmark and $2.7 billion in total sanctions. This is a successful uh, program. There is no question about it. And And the rapid uptick in the number of whistleblower reports is another indication. People trust this system and they believe that they will be able to go through channels and identify wrongdoing. Now, the concern about anonymity um, underscores the fundamental characteristic of whistleblowing across all industries, but I think financial services is probably the most rigorous in its respect for this golden rule. And that is, if you blow the whistle, you will never work in this industry again, if we, if we find out who you are. I mean, it, it is remarkable. I mean, it, a lot, there was a lot of talk, and I think it's absolutely important, about whistleblower protections, anti-retaliation measures. But let's face it, if the person is identified as the whistleblower, they will not work in financial services again. They may invent a new job that's even better. And we'll talk uh, about someone, Ted Sedell, who went from being a very successful SEC whistleblower to a very successful SEC whistleblower attorney and identifier um, of, of, of further fraud schemes. But the reality of, is, if you are identified, you will not work again. Your career is over. So this underscores two things. One, the anonymity of the SEC program is central to its effectiveness. Um, and two, these are people, uh, it, it's, it's almost 50% in the last three years, almost 50% of complaints have been lodged against financial services industries. I mean, the banks are, as Dennis Kelleher and Better Markets have, have pointed out very clearly, um, recidivist fraud vehicles. I mean, they're, they're, I strongly recommend reading the uh, rap sheet reports that the Better Markets puts out because, you know, they just name and list. So, you know, it's, it is vitally, vitally important to maintain the anonymity of the people who step forward, especially since if they're working in financial services, they probably have a major financial risk. Um, if they lose their job, they are probably pretty well compensated. They 
they will be losing a substantial amount of money. When we talk about limiting or capping or putting injecting any uncertainty about the amount of a whistleblower reward, you're asking for trouble. One of the major concerns uh, about the recent amendments was the one that was sort of passed over, um, but was inserted in the back door. And the proposal back in 2018 was to consider amendments to Rule 6, which would, according to one reading, insert um, a cap on, on the amount of whistleblower rewards. Now, the commission ultimately did not do this. They backed away from this, but they simply said, we inherently have the discretion to adjust the award percentage and we can we can do this in a way that is you know that reflects the amount that is reasonably less necessary to reward the whistleblower. Now, at the time, commissioners Robert Jackson and Kara Stein voted against the proposed rule and the amendments to the proposed proposed rule. And Jackson, I think, very rightly said, any kind of assertion that the SEC has discretion injects a huge dose of uncertainty and of politics into a program that, hey, you know, the, the famous expression, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. The SEC whistleblower program is an unqualified success. Sure, there, were some, there are some adjustments to make, but this one, questioning the amount that a whistleblower at the, uh, coming to the SEC may be able to receive and his legal team may be able to receive and whoever is backing this, this uh, complaint is, may be able to receive, this is injecting a huge amount of doubt into a situation where already a person wonders a million times, should I step forward? Will I lose my job? And also it injects, as, as Commissioner Jackson said, politics into this. Mm-hmm. It allows the commission to exercise discretion regarding what the appropriate size of whistleblower reward is. That's going to be a, an argument that goes on and on and on in the future of the commission. We didn't need to open this Pandora's box, and I can only think that that the opening of it is a huge favor of people who really don't like this whistleblower program to begin with and wish it would be less incisive. I think it's an interesting point, and I do think there have been complaints from some corners that some of the awards we've seen over the past several years in particular have just been you know, outsized and, and unsustainable. I don't know that I have been totally convinced that injecting discretion changes the nature of the program. And, and I'm not usually one to uh, to disagree with Commissioner Jackson, but you know, there, there's always been some level of, of discretion involved, right? In that 10 to 30%. I think where we'll, we'll start to have problems are when the 30% would get to a number that someone doesn't like, and there's no real reason to diminish the amount of the the award, um, you know, because of delay or because of culpability or whatever the reasons may be that you wouldn't get the maximum amount, yet they do it anyway. They just say you would otherwise uh, qualify for 30%, but we don't like that amount. So it's going to be less. Uh, you know, that I think is when we'll, we'll really start to have some tough <clears throat> questions to answer. But, you know, again, my sense is that the SEC whistleblower office is trying to signal to the market that that's, that that's really unlikely to happen. I don't know, perhaps you have a different, a different sense of things, Tom. Well, I think that there are a lot of cases in the pipeline right now that could well be kiboshed or significantly reduced by additional discretion from the SEC. But again, discretion on the basis of what? Um, We have an exceptionally successful program right now. 
Um, I don't think that the, any of the awards, including the 114 million award announced in October, are either outsized or unsustainable. They come from a very clear source, and that is ill-gotten gains. I mean, this is a this is a you know, it does not come from investors. It comes from a very clearly defined, congressionally funded source in order to incentivize financial whistleblowers. These, as we said, financial whistleblowers are people who probably have high paying jobs and a lot to lose. But again, you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Why this change? And I can only say, well, whose idea might that have been? And I can only think Wall Street. Yeah. And just to, to lean into the accounting side of it, as, as Kurt, you know, I love to do, I mean, paying $565 million to put out sanctions of, of $2.7 billion, I mean, you're getting five times the money you're paying, which, you know, to, to your point, Tom, is, is kind of what Wall Street is good at identifying and doing. So, you know, I can only imagine what the, the reasons are for, for resistance against that kind of return on, on what we've all agreed has been a very successful program. In talking about some success stories under this successful program, Tom, you had mentioned Ted Seidel a little bit early in your comments. Tell us a bit about that matter. Yes, Ted was a former SEC attorney who secured at the, what was at the time um, the largest SEC whistleblower award, $48 million, for helping to secure a $307 million settlement with J.P. Morgan over the bank's failure to disclose conflicts of interest. In other words, they were sending the money of the wealth management clients to their own mutual funds and hedge funds without revealing this to the clients. And Ted went on to win a CFTC whistleblower award uh, of $30 million for the same misconduct. Now, you know, he needless to say, is not working in financial services directly anymore, but he has become an expert in the forensic investigation of money managers and pensions. Um, you know, he focuses on excessive and hidden investment fees. Uh, he is doing, in a way, the work of the commission as an external advisor. And, you know, he's a repeat whistleblower, and a lot of people turn up their noses at this as if this were something dishonest, <laughs> which is really funny. It's like being a repeat doctor. No, you, you, you do your one operation and then you're done. Or an, a repeat investigator or a repeat lawyer. I mean, I, I do not understand this. I accept that people just mistrust whistleblowing as an activity. But he's, Ted has filed dozens of complaints. He's acted as an expert witness. He's, he's an extremely successful member of the program, beneficiary of the program, but also someone who, you know, continues to this day to, to hunt down wrongdoing. For me, it's, it's a, that's a fascinating success story of the program itself and of members of the program who kind of reinvent themselves as investigators. In some cases, um, I, I profile two in, in my book. Um, SEC attorneys then go on to be, to represent whistleblowers in their own right. They blow the whistle themselves on the commission, and then they go on to become whistleblower attorneys. Um, quite often, that builds a very strong initial trust in their clients because knowing what it's like to be a whistleblower, knowing what it's like to have the whole world come crashing down on you, and and a lot of people call you crazy um, because they cannot understand why you would risk your career for this. That's something that is a common theme in whistleblowers scenarios. And it's something that many, many whistleblowers encounter when they can speak to an experienced whistleblower. It somehow, it gives them a sense that they're not crazy after all, that other people have done this and they're doing the right thing. It's not, and we've done a, a good job here, Tom, of profiling the successes of, of specific whistleblowers. And 
the vast dollar amounts at play, whether they be sanctions or, or awards to whistleblowers. But I think from the third or fourth page of the beginning of your book, you you hit on a note that, that hadn't really resonated with me prior to, to starting it off. And that's the toll that whistleblowing takes on the individual. Can you talk to us a bit about what some of the consequences are? You know, we talked about the, the lack of employability in financial services, but it goes much deeper than that, doesn't it? It certainly does. Whistleblowers, in many cases, ultimately feel betrayed, betrayed by their organization, betrayed by their society, because there's a lot of talk about doing the right thing and stand up for yourself. There are a lot of rules and laws and regulations that, in theory, protect whistleblowers and freedom of speech and and. In reality, they do lose their employment if they are identified. Um, and and there's, it's, it's important to talk about protections, anti-retaliation measures and so on, but it's very hard to create a system that allows someone to go about their, their normal life, uh, go about their jobs as they had before. At the same time, there's a sense that, uh, as I said earlier, that we shouldn't need whistleblowers in the first place. I am just doing my job. I, I profiled a couple of uh, nuclear engineers who, you know, whose sworn legal responsibility uh, includes not allowing a mushroom cloud to appear over their worksite. I mean, that's part of their job and part of their legal responsibility is not to allow a nuclear criticality, a nuclear accident. Now, when they blew the whistle on what they felt was a clear risk of a nuclear accident at their work site, uh, they were viciously retaliated against. Um, you know, another thing that that comes out of the the whole whistleblowing experience for a, for a lot of people is a shock at how human nature um, tends to side not with David but with Goliath. Uh, you know, they, a lot of whistleblowers constantly mention to me how. They knew that their friends and their colleagues and their and 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 the people who who knew what was going on just as well as they did would ultimately do the right thing and testify in their defense, um, give depositions to support of them. And in almost every case, that was false. They found that their friendships were melting away. They found that their communities were turning against them. And you know that's that's a terribly heavy psychological burden, apart from loss of work, uh, loss of self-esteem and so on, you know, these people quite often had built their careers and, and considered their careers very much ongoing to then be treated as, as a pariah. And, and, you know, this is why, and, and again, you have to take the other side. Many times when I interviewed um, the bosses and the, and the coworkers of, of whistleblowers, they genuinely felt this person is unstable. Now, part of that is part of the retaliation playbook. You try to undermine a whistleblower's credibility by questioning their sanity, questioning their facts, questioning, you know, are they disgruntled and so on. But I think in many cases it's genuine because the people who are the team players, the go along to get along personalities, who do not challenge ultimately, they say, well, it's just the way the game is played. When someone does that, they think this person is risking everything. They gotta be crazy, you know. <laughs> yeah. in, in many cases, in 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 defense and in in intel, um, people are sent for psychological fitness for duty examinations and so on. And sometimes, again, that's a retaliatory measure. Sometimes their bosses think this person is nuts. They're <laughs> they're torching their career. How can they possibly do this? Mm-hmm. So, at the end of the day, the blow to the whistleblower goes way beyond their 
livelihood. And it, and it makes them question, you know, the goodness of society, uh, the goodness of, of people who cheer and get all teary-eyed at whistleblower films, but then tolerate the systematic blackballing of, of successful whistleblowers, whistleblowers who have made their cases and shown massive financial fraud, massive human harm. Those same people are hung out to dry and, you know, life goes on. Uh, that that's a that's a very heavy burden for many whistleblowers to bear. Yeah, and it sounds like that only leans into the reasons why the SEC program we've talked about and, and other whistleblowing avenues focus so much on protection for the whistleblower. Even in the case uh, of Gary or, or, or Ted, you know, there's still so much to overcome before you see the other side of that equation. So, talk to us a bit about what you think the you know what the important parts of protecting whistleblowers are to ensure that those issues don't arise beyond where they're needed. Well, you're absolutely right that that you know it's it's essential uh, for every one successful whistleblower. There are thousands that either have good facts and aren't able to prove them, or or have bad facts, don't understand uh, that it wasn't actually a fraud after all, um, or are in bad faith. I mean, you know, again, asking a whistleblower to be Mother Teresa is a disservice to the whistleblower and to the people who are to are asked to evaluate their claims. Um, so. Let's talk about the whistleblower retaliation playbook and then steps to prevent these things from happening, which is anti-retaliation uh, measures. I mean, the first thing you do is identify the person who has blown the whistle. And quite often they've put themselves on the radar because they've reported the misconduct internally, thinking they were doing the organization a favor. Um, so, you know, it's all very well to keep someone's name secret, but quite often the members of an organization can suss out, can work out who that who it must have been. They have a short list and they tick off the people who came forward already to report this information, this misconduct, and they pretty quickly get to um, the identity of the whistleblower. The, the next step is to isolate them, to take away the responsibilities, um, to begin to label them, again, not team players, disgruntled, disruptive, even not fully sane. And the next step is to dig through their past for actions, real or imagined, that undercut their credibility and make them look like disgruntled, disruptive, or insane. And, you know, again, it's that famous, give me two lines by an innocent man and I will hang him with him. You know, anyone who's, who's past is subjected to a very thorough analysis will be found wanting. And the paper trail, building a paper trail of poor performance reviews that start immediately after the whistleblowing, you know, it's it's a kind of a joke because it's so obvious. And yet that game is played again and again and again. And of course, all of this is preparatory to firing um, in, a, in as public a manner as possible because it sends a message to the person, you know, you're gone and to the coworkers, you're next. And that, again, is an intimidation that, that goes well beyond the individual whistleblower, but it works. I mean, you know, if you watch someone being frog marched out of their office and not even allowed to go back to their cube, if it's a security guard wearing a gun, you know, that makes an impression. And then, of course, blackballing. And, uh, you know, uh, for all of the well-meaning attempts to l legislate against blackballing, I am not aware of anything that's successful in making people hire people who have blown the whistle. You know, we can talk about what would be an effective way of rewarding whistleblowing and, and encouraging whistleblowing. And I think the step number one is hire at least one whistleblower. Make a major statement by the, by the leadership of the corporation 
we believe in this. We're not against it. We're for it. That, you know, tone at the top is absolutely critical. That almost never happens. The retaliation playbook is very carefully worked out. It's almost instinctive in many cases because, again, um, it's amazing how fully grown individuals take these things so personally. You know, I hired you and 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 I, you know, I put some of my career capital on the line for you. And how do you thank me? You report that we're ripping off investors. Now, it may be true or it may be false. <laughs> but how the dare fact you, is, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You did this to me. This is personal. It becomes personal instantly. So the extent to which an organization can, can wise up is a very, very interesting body of work by Professor Kyle Welch at George Washington University that shows it works with huge data sets, anonymized data sets by Navex Global the compliance organization. And and it shows that the more widely used a whistleblower hotline and a whistleblower reporting mechanism is in an organization, the healthier that organization is. It seems almost counterintuitive because you think, wow, yeah, they have a lot to talk about, right? There's a lot of wrongdoing going on. Actually, it's the opposite. In an organization that supports and respects and protects whistleblowers and people who just report what they think may be wrongdoing, they get into less legal trouble because things don't escalate. They're able to, you know, they're, they're the, these are the best risk managers money can buy. They are looking at this problem and saying, hey, I think this may be broken. What do you think? So, you know, that, that, that idea of whistleblower mechanisms being widely used is an exceptionally good sign. And dead silence in an organization, that's a sign that you've got a problem and that you've got a whistleblower disaster mm-hmm. waiting to happen. I, yeah, Tom, just to respond to that quickly, I was working with a client last year. It's got over 8,000 employees in the U.S., and their whistleblower reporting uh, on an annual basis numbered a single-digit amount of reports coming in. So that's Oopsie. nine or less. Uh, and, uh-huh. and we told them that that's not a great sign, and they said, no, no, we just hire the right people. Yeah. It turns out that they yeah. had one or two issues, again, minor from that perspective, but we encouraged them to revisit their whistleblower program internally to help foster those discussions that, that you just touched on. I think that touches on an ex- exceptionally important point. And, and again, it's so personal. The uh, whistleblowing is in the eye of the beholder. What, one, of, one of the great whistleblower lawyers that I interviewed, um, Tom Devine at, at Government Accountability Project, um, you know, he, he was talking with a, a similar organization where they had no whistleblowing. And the CEO was praising whistleblowing, the act of whistleblowing, the freedom, the importance of, you know, getting inside information. And Tom said, well, wait, you, you know, you guys don't have any whistleblower reports. And he said, oh, we don't have any whistleblowers here. And, and, and Tom said, well, actually, there's this person here. Remember this case? And he, he described a case that had happened a couple of years before, previously. And the guy said, that's not a whistleblower. That's an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's perfect. That's yeah. perfect because anyone in your organization, and I think, you know, the, the Trump anti-whistleblower behavior, that's a perfect example. You know, when you cross the line and you're you're blowing the whistle on on the true believers, all of a sudden you're not a whistleblower. You're a traitor. Mm. And and that and that's, again, a very human shift in focus that that points out that, you know, we need whistleblower laws and regulations that are beyond the reach of, to the extent we can, human interpretation. And that's a tough ask, <laughs> given that we're humans that are writing it. But, but, but you know, it, whistleblowing tends to become very personal very fast. And that's part of the vulnerability of the whole whistleblower system. 
I think we're we're dancing around some tensions that exist in this space between instinct or or intuition about how we should think about or treat whistleblowers, and on the other hand, how we should build policies and procedures or how we should build a regulatory framework to both encourage and protect those people. And and sometimes those things, I think, are at, at loggerheads, unfortunately. And so the you know the question or a question, and and let's think about this from a regulatory standpoint rather than a uh, a, a corporate culture or, or corporate policies and procedures standpoint, but from a regulatory standpoint, you know, are we getting it right? Because I think we've all agreed that, you know, the SEC's whistleblower program, for example, has been has been wildly successful. But, you know, what it really does is is offer payments to people to come forward. Uh, it encourages them to report outside of their own organization. Uh, on some level, it encourages people to take risk without without a guarantee of any reward or any protection. While on the other hand, you know, folks who report internally may not have any protections at all, or they, they may not, you know, get the benefit of any kind of payment. So I don't know, Tom, what do, you, what do you think in terms of the way that our current regulatory system exists? Are we getting that framework right? Are we balancing the risks and rewards appropriately? I think that the SEC um, whistleblower program is doing about as good a job as as is being done out there. And I think anonymity is a critical part of that. But, you know, at the end of the day, if we have a situation in which a whistleblower's identity is released and they are permanently blackballed from employment in their chosen profession, that's broken. That doesn't work. Are these recoveries from the SEC commensurate with the scale of the fraud? You know, if we look at the damage done by the 2008 financial crisis, which by some reckoning is $34 trillion and counting, and the major, one of the major causes, of course, is bank wrongdoing. You know, I think white collar crime and financial crime um, is has simply been ennobled to something like clever business practice. And I don't think that the ultimate recoveries are commensurate with the losses to fraud. I mean, what are the resources of the SEC compared to one major bank? I mean, even if even if they meant to, even if there weren't any revolving door pressures and other pressures to go after the big boys. How could they? How could the SEC possibly do that? Their, you know, their their funding has been flat or even below inflation. They are constantly being run uh, by revolving door people who come from and return to Wall Street. I mean, how, how can we expect this to work? Uh, so I think it's a wonderful program. It's doing great good. But if we're serious about actually fixing the root causes of what Dennis Kelleher and others call recidivist fraud organizations, which are the major banks, and this is this is just the way it is. These are facts. I mean, it's ugly, but it's true. And since 2008, they've doubled down because guess what? Nobody went to jail. <laughs> uh, you know, it, given this, I think the numbers are just wildly out of whack and the social damage, financial damage being done right now is vastly more than any amount of whistleblower rewards, which I find, again, I find it offensive to say, we've got a great program that's working great. Let's think about, you know, modulating some of these big awards because boy, that's 114 million, that's a lot of money. Yeah, well, guess how much money is being stolen and not recovered? Yeah, I mean, I, I think what you're saying makes an awful lot of sense. Uh, you know, in terms of the amount of the awards, I, I suppose, 
you know, some people have very different views about that. You know, many of the of the jurisdictions in Canada, for example, don't think there should be any whistleblower awards in any circumstances. It should sort of just be people coming through to report potential misconduct because they, you know, they're responding to their better Mother angel. Teresa. Right. Yeah, exactly. I, and I've heard this before too. You know, the problem is it, this is not a bounty payment. This is a net present value lump sum for your lost career. That's the way to look at this, okay? These are not bounties. Yeah. These are not payoffs. You're not winning the lottery. You're taking your, fina- your financial and your career life in your hands. Now, you may be doing it because you think it's a, it's a sharp move. You may be doing it because you hate your boss. You may be doing it because you think your career, all of these things are irrelevant. Mm-hmm. The fact is, this, these payments are lump sum net present value payments for your lost career. Because if the net word gets out that you did this, you're done you're over. So if you're going to say, well, you know, let's make this more reasonable, you're, you're cutting at the root of what would make someone step out of line at Goldman Sachs and say, wait, you know, I'm going to blow the whistle because this is just not right. And besides, I could actually, you know, I could get pretty well from this. Uh, I see no problem, moral problem. And I, I find it, again, it's asking a human, a normal human being to become Mother Teresa to say, well, you should just do it because it's the right thing to do. I mean, you know, do you know how long that kind of talk lasts on Wall Street? Are you kidding me? People laugh at you for that. Like, right. What? How much money am I making? Right. And that's perfectly reasonable. That's why you go to the street. Again, this is not this is not heresy. What I'm saying, this is widely known. Right. So, you know, to, to say, well, gee, there shouldn't be any because it, it perverts the morality of whistle. Oh, please. Oh, come on. You know, the SEC got this right. You pay people for information. You keep their name off the charts to the extent you can. That's the way you do it. It's just that there should be another couple of zeros on the recovery. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about the, you know, the bounties, but the recoveries, yes. Right, well, let, let me probe one more one more area while we're talking about the regulatory f- framework, and it, it has to do with internal reporting. I mean, I know in the case of the the nuclear engineers that you talked a little bit about earlier. You know, my recollection is that they did not report internally, but instead they reported to the to the federal government through some reporting program. There was an actually no, they 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 went exhaustively through the channels. They went to their boss and their boss's boss and their boss's boss's boss. They went through every imaginable, and that's why they were widely known as a whistleblower long before they actually made a whistleblower complaint. I'm sorry to interrupt you there. No, no, that's that's good. I want to get it right because it, it the question I think is should they be required to? Uh, you know, should should that be a requirement either to get protection or to qualify for an award? I mean, do we want to incentivize or require people to report potential misconduct internally first? Well, there are two ways of looking at this. Uh, the answer is no, you cannot require this because you put people immediately on the radar as potential whistleblowers and you terminate their careers. All right. Going through channels is the best way to come up on the radar. They're going to find you. They're going to stop you or they'll do their very best. But having said that, how many problems? I mean, one of the big challenges in reporting my book was to try to tell the good stories, the, 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 the moments when things worked as they should. You know, when John goes to his boss, Jane, and says, hey, Jane, you know, I think this is illegal what we're doing here. And Jane goes, holy cow, you're right. Yeah, let's stop it immediately. And they stop it and it goes away and, and, and try to get an organization to tell you about those stories. Good luck to you. Because, you know, the, I, I, and I tried several times knowing what the schemes were, knowing what had happened and knowing that everyone had done the right thing from John to Jane to the, to the chairman of the board. 
And no one would tell me anything because, of course, they don't want to air their dirty laundry and say, yeah, we were doing something illegal for a while. And then we realized it was illegal and we stopped. So, you know, but yes, I mean, in the ideal world. And again, a whistleblower doesn't shouldn't exist in the ideal world. You don't need them because people are just doing their jobs in the ideal world. John goes to Jane, his boss, and says, Jane, this is broken. We've got to fix this. And Jane said, yes, you're right. We'll fix it immediately. They fix it. It goes away. Never becomes a problem. That's the ideal world solution to wrongdoing, which probably wasn't even intentional, right? Because they fixed it. But for every scheme that gets identified and remedied by outsiders, i.e. prosecutors or the commission or whoever, there are 10 that, that go their merry way and make a lot of money for the corporation. You cannot require people to blow the whistle internally and therefore put themselves in. If you're serious about anonymity, that is a non-starter. So I think we've circled back to where we started in a sense that, I mean, if we look at the SEC's program, they're doing the best uh, they can, or they have the best program that is operating right now. At least I think that is your view based on how, you know how you feel about things like bounty payments, sorry for the term, and you know internal reporting. I think, I think the SEC is doing a pretty good job with this. They're doing a terrific job, and I just wish they had more resources and more clout to be able to to do it even more. Yeah, Tom, on a lighter note, we always like to to hear about you know how you see whistleblowers represented in pop culture, and, and is obviously a, a area rife with representations in, in popular media. Do you have a favorite whistleblower movie, and, and if so, what is it? Oh, I have a bunch of favorite whistleblower <laughs> movies. I, I actually think they're fantastic entertainment. Uh, the problem is that, you know, again, so often there is a two-hour high suspense, high drama, very painful experience after which the whistleblower wins and, and everyone walks away cheering. And that unfortunately doesn't represent reality. However, the, the insider, I think is one of my absolute yep. favorites about Jeffrey Wigand, the tobacco whistleblower, yep. mm-hmm. and the way in which Russell Crowe is able to 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 bring out the the really deeply psychologically unsettling techniques that the big tobacco companies use against Dr. Wigand. And and the way in which the press is it Al Pacino is 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 the sixty minutes reporter, mm-hmm. you know, is is kind of you know, they're they're being pushed by their corporate owners to, you know, it, let's be careful how we portray this. And is this guy, in fact, a loose cannon, a crazy guy, or is he? So I think the insider captures, uh, apart from just being really, really good entertainment, it captures a lot of the, the deeper dynamics that we tend to gloss over when we look at whistleblowers, uh, whistleblower stories as a happy David and Goliath triumph of the little guy over the institution, which just ain't the case in many in many cases. Yeah, that's right. And on episode six, we asked Matt Stock the same question and came up with a, a good list, including the informant. You know, obviously a, a little bit lighter take than than Russell Crowe's portrayal of, of an insider, uh, as well yeah. as all the president's men, which you know, unrelated to to business specifically, but uh, definitely touched on one of the major milestones in the twentieth century here in the United States. Totally agree. All the President's Men is a great, that was on my list here. Mm-hmm. And, and Michael Clayton, I think, is also yeah. a very, very good. Um, you know, whistleblowers can be compromised. Why? Michael Clayton, George Clooney, does a great job as this sort of sleazy fixer at a yeah. big law firm mm-hmm. and whose who's buddy and, and genius de- defense lawyer, you know, loses it and starts saying the truth, which is that, you know, this big, pesticides corporation has been causing cancer in massive numbers of people. And all of a sudden, 
George Clooney, who is this fixer. I mean, he knows he's not a nice guy. Mm-hmm. He's done a lot of dirty stuff. All of a sudden, he reaches his breaking point or his, you know, his point of fear because his car blows up. He thinks, boy, if I don't do something. So I think that also captures some of the mixed um, characteristics that, you know, not all whistleblowers need to be. We shouldn't expect them to be saintly. They are people, too. And, and their motivations ultimately are, are secondary to their facts. And, and maybe a little too personal question here, Tom, but has, has anyone picked up the movie rights to Crisis of Conscience yet? And, and if so, you know, both, both Kurt and I are interested in, in, yeah. in our acting careers taking off as well. So we're happy to be reporting for the casting call. I, you know, I, the funny thing is that people like the Hollywood version a lot better than they like the reality. Yeah, you know, it's, a, it's a, 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 several people have said, hey, great book. Ooh, tough read. <laughs> you know, one, 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 bit, one business professor said, you know, I was so depressed when I read that. And then I started thinking, no. I've got to find ways to fight back against this because the reality is, you know, the good guys and the good gals quite often don't prosper and the bad guys just keep doing it. So, you know, it's not, and it was kind of hard for me to write that book because, you know, I I kept tugging towards the happy ending and, you know, there are some very successful whistleblowers. There are some, there are some happy endings, but you know, many times they, they themselves say, there shouldn't be whistleblowers. We shouldn't need whistleblowers. The fact that we have them in the first place and that we, the whistleblowers, are so much a part of the daily news is a problem in itself. And I, and I think ultimately that's, that's true. So, you know, my, I ultimately, if they make a film of this, of this book, it will be focused on, I think, more the, the Age of Fraud subtitle than the whistleblowers mm-hmm. in. Because, you know, the, again, you know, we really shouldn't have we shouldn't need whistleblowers we shouldn't rely so much on them what does it mean about our social institutions our governmental institutions our corporations if we require you know people to 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 really break faith uh, to change their allegiance and to and to go undercover to wear a wire all this stuff it's very dramatic but it's kind of scary when you think about what that means. Maybe we're leaning towards a, a Netflix series here because they, they don't seem to have any difficulty coming to a, a sour ending sometimes, but they, that's, yeah. no, that's dirty money. Yeah. Awesome. True enough. True enough. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the insecurities podcast and a special thanks to our guest, Tom Mueller, author of crisis of conscience. You can find Tom's work at TomMueller.co. As always, we want to hear from you regarding your thoughts, comments, and topics for discussion on future episodes of Insecurities. Please use the hashtag InsecuritiesPod on Twitter or LinkedIn to join the conversation. You can find me at CPA, And I'm at Enforce underscore Update. Be well, everyone, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening to Insecurities, a podcast from PLI, the Practicing Law Institute. PLI is a nonprofit provider of authoritative professional services training and continuing education. In an increasingly complex business environment where intricate corporate structures reign, Insecurities can help you make sense of it all. A special thanks goes to the producer of Insecurities, Daniel Pinitz, as well as hosts Chris Ekimoff and Kurt Wolf. For more information about PLI's SEC Institute, 
or to view hundreds of hours of fresh and relevant on-demand programming covering changes within the security sector, visit pli.edu membership and sign up for a privileged membership. These recorded materials are designed for educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute legal, audit, tax, consulting, business, financial, investment, or other professional advice, and it does not create an attorney-client relationship. Please consult a qualified professional advisor before taking any action based on the information herein. Furthermore, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individual participants. PLI, Troutman Pepper, and RSM do not make any representations or warranties, express or implied, regarding the contents of this podcast. Users of this podcast may save and use the podcast only for personal or other non-commercial educational purposes. No other use, including without limitation, reproduction, retransmission, or editing of this podcast may be made without the prior written permission from PLI.